Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm Timothy Nargi, one of the ruling elders, and today we have a discussion about the book Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams. The discussion is hosted jointly by the men's and women's ministries of Grace Covenant Church. With this session, um, thank you guys for coming out, and especially those of you guys who have been here every week. Um, This is such an important discussion to have in the American church, and it is such a tricky conversation to have, and therefore there are so many people who become unwilling to have it at all. Um, And that is something that I think this book rightfully kind of calls people on, that like ignoring the fact that injustice does exist is the exact opposite of what we are called to do as Christians. Um, And these last two questions really tackle, I would say, the worldview of tribes thinking, which is what part four is about. But in a way, the entire book is about this idea of um, how do we view ourselves and how do we view our position in the world and what that position is supposed to be? What are we owed? And um, these two questions, the suffering question, and then lastly, the standpoint question, um, both of them kind of discuss things that have already been discussed in earlier questions, um, like question three about what identity matters more in Adam or in Christ. Um, That is readdressed in the standpoint question. Um, Some of the questions from part two, um, four, five, and six are readdressed in chapter 11, but it is still like new things to kind of consider. Um, So on reading these two chapters, what are some of the things that you guys noticed like starting with chapter 11, even though it is readdressing some things or maybe re-emphasizing some things, was there anything new that stood out or something new that you had not considered in the earlier chapters or just in your own um, like discussion bubble? Anything that stood out to you in these two chapters? I really appreciated the example he gave, the story of hip-hop artist... Oh, Shaylin. Shaylin. Yes. I was like, Shai? No, that would be in Chinese. (laughs) Shaylin. I thought that was very compelling, especially at the very end when his child tells him, Daddy, Mm -hmm. I don't want brown skin. I want white skin. And it just reminded me that there are injustices and suffering that we don't see, we don't realize, and we may not imagine. and I, so I just really appreciated that particular example. It just, like that, just mm-hmm. really made the point so clear in a very compelling way and uh, in a very sad way. Yeah. Have you read his full article? Mm-hmm. It is worth a read. Um, I can put that in my mind if you guys want to link to that. It was from uh, the Gospel Coalition. But Shaylin is also a phenomenal um, rap artist. So if you guys have not listened to any of his stuff, um, I recommend it. He talks about <clears throat> generalizations. Yeah. Tribes thinking generalizes things. And generalizing is, is such a danger, whether you are a social justice A person or a social justice B person, any way you walk through life, mm-hmm. um, generalizing is... Um, it might be a place to start, but it can't be a place to finish mm-hmm. with ideas. And 
generalizing people and painting them into um, this box that you that you want to create um, uh, just leads to degrading them mm-hmm. and turning them into a, you know, something two-dimensional or even one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And I think it leads to generalizing God, generalizing mm-hmm. within the gospel and, mm-hmm. and, and generalizing God. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, you're the, you're the arbitrator of everything. <laughs> all the, I think that I, I, I thought that that was, um, that was a good illustration of, uh, of tribes thinking. Mm-hmm. It becomes very specific as to who is the good guy. Yeah. But by necessity, it has to be very broad as to who is the bad guy. Yeah. yeah. But, and, and the good guy is really only me. Right. And, and people five, like me. Five of us. Yeah. <laughs> Six of us in total. <laughs> me and the, like, me oh, and the other five. <laughs> me and the other five. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had t- discussed this before. This is also addressed in chapter two of like what dehumanization does and how generalization kind of is the first step on that. Yeah. Very hideous path. Um, and we talked about this as well last time. We talked about um, abstraction and the law or the assumed similarity bias that everyone has had my experiences or my resilience or my like uh, advantages. And therefore, people who are not living up to that standard are just worse people than I am. Um, or, like, aren't trying hard enough. And we talked about that when we discussed Chapter 8 as well. And, like, generalization just feeds that fire so abruptly that everything in association with this particular group or this particular mindset is the worst possible aspect of what it could be. And so, therefore, you don't have to engage with people on an individual or specific basis. It actually helps you to keep as, like, broad a label as possible so that way you don't have to engage. He kind of mentions before, like, if it hasn't happened to me, it's not really happening. And, like, that is what abstraction really feeds on, that it can't be a specific thing of what someone has actually lived through. It, if it's not happening in my immediate circle, it's not really real or it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And, and I don't have to think about it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if I don't have to think about it, then I can't start actually weighing what other people's lived experience is. Mm-hmm. And I can't start weighing what their suffering is. Um, and, and I, you know, I just kind of, you know, put them into little boxes and I'm the one that controls the boxes, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and I expand or, or contract the box based on how I view them. Yeah. And that's, uh, and that's a, uh, that's certainly outside of that identity where we see ourselves in the gospel or our identity, identity where we see ourselves in Christ. Yeah. We're making, we're assuming that we are at a level that we're just not mm-hmm. called to be. Other thoughts on chapter 11 or on what Dave or Paulette were saying? 
I think his comments in the section rewiring brains is is even more powerful than he says. I um, I read a book by a neuroscientist a few years ago, um, and he was talking about um, neuroscience and the research with Alzheimer's and dementia patients and things like that. And um, I have some neurological issues, particularly since my cardiac arrest that I've been dealing with. So I've been learning more and more about the brain um, and traumatic brain injury mm -hmm. and things like that. And it's really true when what you rehearse and what you go over and over again reinforces that to happen over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's like there's a, there's a double effect of it. And, you know, taking every thought captive to the beings of Christ and watching what we dwell on is far more significant than we realize. Mm -hmm. And I think so kind of reemphasizing by what we read and certain people we talk to, certain lines of thinking like the generalizations mm -hmm. is far more detrimental to us and causes us to be more blind because we're actually affecting our brain wiring. It's crazy. Yeah. It's really, yeah, it's, it's for real. I think it's part of why things like the social media, like algorithms work so well That's is because it like your brain latches onto that narrative and then just finds more and more things that reinforce it. Right. Like, so he discusses this and, you know, rewiring brains for breakdown. Um, but he readdresses it again in um, the standpoint question when he gives that example of the like paranoid person on the train, or like nothing you say to them is going mm. to change that narrative mm -hmm. of that this person is out to get me. Um, and there's that like broader kind of thing of like, well, we are still called to engage with these kind of people. And the ultimate question that we need to be asking is not what is my truth, but what is true. And so how do we like knowing what truth is and that truth is often unflattering. So knowing like what truth is, how do we then engage with the world around us? Because it's weirdly a like mental state known as dualism, which is often promoted by like, <laughs> Then Buddhists and other like like uh, Richard Rohr, who's not a Zen Buddhist but is also not a Christian, um, promotes it the most of like dualistic thinking is thinking both and it's the evolved state of the like the contemplative mind, and like both and thinking is sometimes true, like both of these things can be true, and so we have to be able to understand what is the context around them. Mm -hmm. Like the example that he gave of like people on two sides of one debate, both of those situations need to be addressed of like, what is the, like, we have to understand like what the context is. How does this apply? Like both of these things can be true, but what is the truth? It's like the, that meme, if you guys have ever seen it, of like two people standing on like, a digit that's written sideways. And so from one, say it's a six and one from the other one, it's a nine. And they're like, you know, it's a six, it's a nine. It's like, Oh, both are true. Yes. But also what is the context? Who wrote it first? What was like the, when it showed up, what was it supposed to be? And so there are things that we can get down to. It is going to ultimately be one of these things. Both and can be true, but ultimately there is one truth and that truth is God. And so God 
both loves and pardons sin and demands justice for that sin. That's what this day commemorates. And so, like, both of those things can be true. The cross is an act of love and an act of wrath. And so, how do we understand ourselves? Like, uh, Dennis made the point last, not Palm Sunday, but the Sunday before, of focusing too much on one side of things or the other, like focusing too much on our need for the gospel and like our own sinfulness or focusing too much on like what we can do to prove our like worthiness and how both of those things need to be like taken into account. Like you do need the gospel and also your sins have been forgiven. Both of those things are true. And so we need to come to a healthier understanding of like how we are supposed to view ourselves. I'm kind of thinking about, and this is a convoluted statement. I'm kind of thinking about how thinking has evolved to non-thinking. <laughs> you know, as as <laughs> as as I was listening to you and I was thinking about brains being rewired and exposure to to whatever uh, that was caught that would cause you to um, to adopt those ideas and to internalize those ideas um, you can feed on um, things that would cause you to stop thinking mm -hmm. and you stop thinking about God you stop thinking about your need for God you stop thinking about other people um, and you start to create a world um, which is not a binary thing anymore where there is a creator and there is the created, and that's pretty binary, um, but there's not the creator, there's, you know, whatever I came from, whether it was you know, whatever I came from. And I have become whatever I want to define, whatever I want to define it to be. Yeah. And anyone who does, anyone who has a binary view of a creator and the created, well, they're on the outside. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, there's, there's something, something that's wrong with them. And what if, what a flip from thinking of 300 years ago, mm -hmm. you know, when, uh, um, or, you know, 2,000 years ago. I would say even thinking 300 years ago with yeah. the Enlightenment, yeah. we don't need, right, tradition, or we don't right. need um, right. a, a dogma-like understanding of morality. Right. Right. This is when we have, you know, Rousseau and uh -huh. Voltaire and Jefferson. Um, I think it just speaks again to our need for self-rule. Like, I mean, that was the original temptation. 
like, first of all, taking God out of context, did God really say that if you eat of any tree, you will die? And then when we specific, like when Eve specifically said, no, it's just this tree, then, oh, since that one command wasn't true, this one isn't either, that you won't, right. you won't die, you will become like God. And then so justice starts to get framed in that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. And then that leads to injustice that gets framed in that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. And it leads to social justice and how it can be framed and framed in that kind of thinking. You know, I guess if you have a loud enough bullhorn, um, there are people who will listen. Mm-hmm. You can kind of shout any old nonsense. Yeah. Nuts. I think, I mean, especially this has just been exacerbated by how quickly we get information, but also how quickly we get wrong information. Yeah. Um, and how much that circulates and, like, how impossible it is to recall something once it's out on, like, TikTok or Twitter. Um, it has become, like, almost an impossible thing to debate or to discuss differing worldviews with anything resembling respect to the point where rationality itself is on people's merchandise Yes, that you can just buy it. And it doesn't like, they don't have to, they can just sell you things that say rationality on them. It doesn't, it doesn't ever encourage you to question whether they are ones being rational. It's just, (laughs) (laughs) they are right. You can just say things like facts don't care about your feelings and not really discuss where your facts are coming from either. Cause that right. is applicable right. to everyone, right? Facts don't care about your feelings, but. And then it becomes oppression. If you, if you, if you state a fact, um, or if you try to move a conversation or debate to facts, mm-hmm. um, then there is a, real potential that, um, you know, the oppression word will be raised Mm -hmm. or the oppression idea will be raised. And this is not only from a social justice A or a social justice B point of view, but also from a social justice A point of view. Um, When we we fail to listen Mm -hmm. and let things be talked through because you you hear these fallacies and you hear this confused line of thinking and you it takes it takes real heart um, to be able to listen mm-hmm. and then begin to work at those ideas, um, you know, kind of like one at a time, or a little bit at a time, so that someone doesn't feel like you're attacking their identity or you're attacking their, you know, their worldview or their lived experience or 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 what have you. When you're just when you're trying to talk about truth. Mm-hmm. I think about basketball. There's only one way that points are scored in basketball. And that way would be... Ball going through the net. Ball goes through the hoop. 
Mm-hmm. The ball goes through the hoop. There's only one way that points get scored in hockey. And that would be when the puck goes, puck crosses the line and stays in the net. Um, so there's a world. There's a world of, um, I don't know, binary truths. Or there's a world of truths that are only one way. Um, and for and for that to be suddenly inviolate. Or in is that a word? Inviolate. Inviolate, yeah. Inviolate. For that to suddenly be inviolate in this set of circumstances, but not in those sets of circumstances, well, it just seems inconsistent. I think inconsistency kind of sums up a lot of when it comes to discussing like what is needed in order for a person to live their truth mm-hmm. and like just the the danger surrounding that. Um, of what that phrase is, because truth is something that is objective, that exists mm-hmm. objectively, and yet there are so many, like, encouraging messages to, like, this is what you need to be your best self or to be your authentic self, and, like, those words don't mean anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then especially when you look at, like, things that we collectively see as egregious, like, for instance... Um, the use of like blackface in older media um, or in more recent cases, like Rachel Dolezal, if you guys remember that story um, or Ollie London, who's more recent of people who are claiming to be transracial. Um, so Rachel Dolezal, like she was a vice president of the NAACP where she was in Oregon. And like, it was a whole thing. She had a not, history. She had yeah, a history of claiming of this. this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but if you were to talk to Ms. Delizal, like, this is what she, this was her authentic self. And we recognize that, no, that is unacceptable. You are not this thing. And you are not, you cannot claim, like, this as your identity, right? There are whole histories. And, I mean, people have been killed for this. Like, you, you cannot just claim that you have access to this suffering or access to this community because you feel it's supposed to be who you are. Like, we collectively across the board saw that as, as uh, horrific. And then the same debate, though, when you change what the trans proceeds like when it comes to transracial versus transgender, how not accepting that or not affirming that is seen as the horrific thing. Um, Where like, if you do not accept this person's understanding of who they're supposed to be, regardless of what they were when they were born, uh, that is unloving or horrific or the worst thing you could possibly do. And it is, like, very interesting what we are allowed to reject. Um, like, when we see things, like, there, all of these things are horrific. Like, um, the use of blackface. Like, in the film Holiday Inn, it just randomly shows up. And it's just ugly. And it's hard to sit in. And they're doing it to make fun of people of color. And it's just really upsetting to watch that in what's supposed to be a Christmas movie. But... Right. I think it's important that you see that that happened because of how widespread this was. This is horrific. And then what do we do about RuPaul's Drag Race? 
That I, I am asking that rhetorically. Yeah. But also not. Right. Right. <laughs> and it's it's um, you know if there's anything that is um, shaking your fist at God is you know taking your your physical self and saying this is not my physical self mm-hmm. you know, this is or not my emotional self or you know however however that's however that's framed so that someone becomes so convinced or wants to play the part or however it however it works um, to move forward like that. What I find so fascinating about that, particularly the trans piece, is these people know they have a knowledge that something is really wrong mm-hmm. and they're right. You know, they're right. And they have the courage to make a radical change, right? To pretend to be the opposite gender or some new invented gender. But they're actually right to a degree. What they need, though, is even more radical. They need to be right again. Yeah. Mm. So there's a lot to work with there Mm -hmm. to speak to that they have an understanding of that need and they have a lot of courage to do what they're doing. Mm That is a real opening mm-hmm. for us, I believe. Um, and you never know what is the root of that pain and that whatever that has pushed them to realize that need. Yeah. There's something behind there. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, anyway, it's, 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 a, it's a it's a distressing very disconcerting and what's the word i'm trying to think of disorienting time but it's also a very ripe time Mm -hmm. for the gospel and and for us to share christ with people i think what's also fascinating is the religiosity behind it they they're they feel as well they don't feel as if they feel like they're they're not who they're supposed to be it's as if their transcendental mm-hmm. being has a specific identity and they were physically manifested into something that does not fit that. So they, in order to fix that, they have to um, do this holy rite of fixing their body yeah. so that it can match their perceived identity. I think it's... Um and we discussed this in one of the earlier sessions. We talked about the the comorbidity of something like gender dysphoria, of how often it is attached to things like drama, but also to depression and anxiety. And there are deeper-seated hurts that I think become very easy to ignore because um, there is a, a history, I would say, in, in right-wing America in particular, of, of not being very compassionate to... Um, people's lived experiences. And in a way, chapter 
12 and chapter 11 kind of rightly a generalization i did <laughs> i know sorry I oh it's a double-edged sword um <laughs> your point is well taken but it's, <laughs> it's it is easier to make fun of than it is to try and help mm-hmm. because trying to help means acknowledging hurt and working to help that hurt be real like there's a reason that he talks about in the rewiring brains for breakdown that there's exposure therapy as well as rational cognitive therapy. And it doesn't like both of them don't work all the time for all the people. Like what have you been exposed to? And like, it was your brain ready for exposure to it. And so this idea of just like, well, you'll get over it um, or just get over it now. Like how unhelpful that is. Sometimes it might be what certain people need to hear. And sometimes it isn't. And so like uh, people with, um, body integration integrity disorder of like people who believe actively just in their brains that they're that they should not have both legs that like their leg is not a part of them that it should be removed like a tumor like that is this need to amputate healthy body parts is a recognized psychological disorder and so like how do you engage with that and it's it's crazy to me to think that like if something like TikTok wouldn't would uh, ban, if they didn't like ban stuff like that off mm-hmm. of their platform, like if someone were to promote something like that, um, if they didn't have that moderation, how um, how easy it would be to manipulate younger generations. Like if you had a, a person on TikTok be like, "Hey, like your right leg is not part of you; it's a tumor. Mm-hmm. You need to remove it." Like how easy it would be. Like we've seen how easy that would be to manipulate a young mind to go that direction. Yeah. But I mean, isn't that also? I remember you probably can't remember this because we're part of similar generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Remember 2007, the emo movement. Yeah. Emo stuff, you know, how it was virtuous to cut yourself Mm -hmm. because it was virtuous to be rebellious. It was um, uh, to get attention from people. and because of your current suffering of depression or whatever. And um, um, so they got into communities of <laughs> young teenagers who would do this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it would make them feel good for some reason. And, like, we didn't really have – social media wasn't, didn't, wasn't really a thing at the time, but it was more of a social pressure of, like, our peers. Mm-hmm. And I remember on the outside looking in at that sort of thing, just thinking how – ridiculous it was but like they were convinced that that was good that it's okay to do that and um um yeah <clears throat> it provides people with a way to address what they feel is wrong as Paulette was uh, mentioning earlier that by necessity like circumnavigates around christ like no not not that anything but that Mm-hmm. this other thing will fix it for me or this other thing will will make it right but not coming to terms with the fact that you are a sinner who mm-hmm. needs salvation yeah. because I mean just asking people do you think you're a good person mm-hmm. and just like what that conversation ultimately spirals into it's like why do you think you're good like we were talking about this with a catechism class a couple like weeks ago where we went over the story in Mark of the rich young ruler and like just the, the wisdom in Christ's answer, which is like, why do you call me good? 
no one is good but God, but the person saying that was the second person of the Trinity incarnate. And just how, you know, well, you know what the law is, you know, that this is what you have to do. And the young man just going, all these I've kept since I was a boy. So, yeah, only God is good, but also I'm good too. Just immediate, like, yeah, I'm good too. And just how difficult that is because you were told that what you want or what you aspire to be or who you see yourself is, that is the ultimate good, right? You have to pursue, this is something you should do for your own good, right? Or this is something that I need to be my best self. And so this is about pursuing good, but no one is good but God. That is really devastating, especially when so many people have wrapped their entire identity around what we've talked about before of like performative um, justice or performative repentance. It is about showing the world how good you are because you are hypersensitive to all of these things. You are so aware, you are so uh, cognizant of, you know, the harm that people are doing to people who are in your own community, but maybe members of a different community that you want to show your allyship. It is about proving that you are good and how antithetical that is to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Good point, Tim. <laughs> yes, very good. <laughs> I wasn't asking for feedback. I was saying, <laughs> yes, that's a good point. Okay. <laughs> That question was asked without a verbal question mark. It was, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a question. You have anything to contribute? Don't you? <laughs> Continue. <laughs> I'm a selected talk. Yeah, yeah, I know. I apologize. I, I do want to add a point that I think I haven't really fully formed, so it may come out a little bit jumbled up and such, but... Um, I have noticed um, with people around me, like, let's say um, there, there's, there's a need that I've noticed to, and they tell us to do this, affirm somebody's experience, mm-hmm. you know, listen to them, hear them out, listen and affirm them, you know, as we're talking about experiences, like, you know, if, if you ignore or if you say that what I'm feeling or what I'm experiencing isn't the way I'm perceiving it, you're somehow hateful and bigoted. Um, there's a root of, um, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a hangover of a Christian virtue called compassion, which we discussed earlier that people think that it's compassionate to have a parasitical view of empathy. So, um, by that, I mean, um, compassion looks at somebody in a, in a mud pile and they're sinking like, like quicksand, um, compassion would be like, oh, they're going to die if they fall into quicksand, you know, let me get something to pull them out. All right. That's, that's compassion. A parasitic form of empathy is, you know, you're in the quicksand. Let me go into the quicksand with you and sink along with you. That way we're both suffering, you know? And, and so that's sort of. I've noticed that out in the in the culture that people think that they have to suffer alongside with somebody and they call that compassion, which in a way like it is we're supposed to be compassionate. But I think people, because they forget the gospel, they haven't um, surrendered their life to Christ. Um, 
they they go too far with it, mm-hmm. you know. And but I think it's important to recognize that people try to be compassionate because it's kind of what we grew up as a culture. Like that's kind of a hangover of the Christian culture was to be compassionate. And um, I think that there's there's a root there that I think is um, should be addressed. I think. You think they're being compassionate, or is it too scared to tell them the truth? Because right. the right. society will come yeah. down on them. Right. That's what See, we kind of discussed with one of the last chapters. And yeah. here's here's a, a personal situation I'm actually in right now. That's right along with the both of you said. So I have two friends who are in a major conflict, and I listened to and assisted one, and then the other recently said. Hey, we'd like to have you over for s'mores. You know, yeah, I'll come over. Have you heard what's going on? I said, yes, I've heard. Um, I said, I would love to hear from you, your your side of things, if you'd like to share that. He said, I said, I really, really would. And so, and, and did. And, you know, and I was able to affirm that I felt it was really important for you to be heard. And I asked a couple of questions, but the main point was just to spend the evening to hear him and let him talk and let him just unload. But Shay and I both noticed a few things and that we don't think are, it, we think there's an opportunity to bring some truth to bear. We, mm-hmm. we offered the grace, but we think there's some truth that may need to be said. And so now I'm kind of like, do I, what do I, how, you know, so now I'm in this like, now what question mm-hmm. where you weep with those who weep, mm-hmm. but like you're pointing out, Joshua, you don't leave them weeping. <laughs> you also point them to Christ yeah. or point them to truth, but putting feet to that in a personal relationship situation is really, really hard. Yeah. Um, but so necessary because that's where the love really is it's in the listening you know this is how you've experienced it this is how you see it but it's also bringing you know like what you've been pointing out the real truth to bear too but to do that in a way that's still compassionate and you can pray on that and if you have any ideas let me know (laughs) this is going to sound critical but i'm not trying to be critical but it's actually something i've noticed is Say so everyone out there with these, and I'm gonna call them crazy, wicked <laughs> worldviews, are not afraid to say whatever they want to say. That's right. Mm-hmm. But then us Christians who actually have the truth are like too scared to like speak up. And that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that always bothers me because <laughs> we have the truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, that they don't correspond to reality, some of their ideas and worldviews, and it's just nonsense. And like, well, here's the truth. We have the truth, like, and God will be with us. So I'm not trying to criticize, but no, I just I feel like I, I hear a lot of, well, I thought about saying something, but I didn't really say anything. I was like, but they did, mm-hmm. and they're, they're, they're insane. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That, yeah, because yeah. that would be something I'm going to pray about. Yeah, for you, for me, for all of us, just to yeah. be bold. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think there's another Christian virtue is not being quarrelsome, mm-hmm. right? Or at least that's like people take that to mean, you know, um, don't in any circumstance whatsoever have no 
contention with anybody. And that's not, I think that's not good. <laughs> you know, that you have to confront um, and <laughs> injustice, with, you know, without compromising truth, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> ding. I've heard that phrase. So not being quarrelsome isn't addressing wrong think or wrong um, um, lies, which is called what it is. It's lies. Deception with truth. So, yeah, you're supposed yeah, to so confront yeah. it. Yeah. There's uh, even quotes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, Solzhenitsyn. Don't uh, live not by lies, basically. And mm-hmm. one of his things is, uh, he may, in some cases, it might be not a tr- 100% true quote, but if you hear a lie and you don't speak against it, you're part of a lie, like in a small sense, because you are letting it propagate. And then mm-hmm. some people may take that as a silent affirmation of the lie. I don't think that applies 100% of the time because there are times when you just need to shut up and listen. You think that's a generalization? Possible. <laughs> Could be. Could. Yeah. But my point is sometimes we're too scared to speak up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why I want to talk to this person because I don't want him to interpret my listening. Mm-hmm. Right. right. As, as acceptance, yeah, exactly. As affirmation of behavior, you can you can affirm the person's feelings. I have been told before, you can't tell me how I feel, and that's very true. Mm-hmm. You, you can't tell another person how they feel, so you can affirm that they are feeling that way. Um, but the next step is not necessarily to affirm it as, or the next step is not to be a part of affirming it as behavior, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, because I think even in Josh's earlier example of the, the quicksand analogy, we are told to bear one another's burdens. We are told sometimes to get in that quicksand with someone and help them out of it but also we understand that God is there with us, right? How many of the Psalms are about just crying out in desperation from where you are and even knowing the truth, how difficult it is sometimes to still believe the truth that God is with you um, just because of the noise of our own hearts, our own thoughts and the world around us, how easy it becomes to doubt and I mean, this is someone who my like theological experience is years of doubt and how doubt is actually sometimes a very good thing because uh, don't trust everything that comes at you. Um, but it is still like so difficult. How do we show someone that compassion without like affirming something that we know is not biblical? And like, I mean, this is this is something that we discussed in the last um, podcast session. You guys know my siblings' status, um, and just how that has been spoken in the past. And because it has been spoken that like I love you, but this is not what God wants for you. How that just hangs over all of our like small talk conversation now, where like, do we reengage? Do we open that wound again, or is it just? better to not upset things and just how, I mean, 
cowardly, I think sometimes that thinking is of, I don't want to cause a further problem, so therefore I won't say anything. But we're dealing with things that are that have eternal ramifications. And so since we do have the truth, as Tim so adequately points out, shouldn't that make us less worried about what the next family gathering will be and more worried about whether we will see our family? Yeah. We're told in, um, I think it's First Corinthians 15, the love chapter, right? What is that? 13. 14, 13. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're told that um, you can have the tongues of angels and all these other things, but mm-hmm. if you don't have love, all you are is a clanging symbol. All you're doing is making noise. Yeah. If you don't speak the truth in love, you're not going to be representing Christ correctly. You're not going to lead people to the truth. You're just making a whole bunch of noise to them. But there's also the other side of loving someone and yeah. not speaking yeah. any truth at all. That's what the last and, two questions addressed. Yeah. Yeah. And, at, yeah. and at that point, you're just as bad as the person who's speaking truth without love. The, the both of those are necessary. It's a it's a dualistic yeah. concept, both and that truth and love, like um, honesty and empathy are needed. Both of them in equal measure or imbalanced measure, depending on the person you're dealing with. Because again, we don't want to generalize. And you're you're you are championing a love that should not be easily offended. So it's when 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 it's Christ in us, we can take abuse. Um, you know, we can we can take far more than I think I can tolerate, um, or often step out into to tolerate, um, because it's Christ in me and it's His truth, not. My truth, yeah, you know? and that can be so that can be so easy to forget. And when you see, you know, some of the things that uh, um, are written um, of a social justice bee warrior, they are easily offended. Mm-hmm. Generalization, um, but that it 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 is a picture of of offense. And I was thinking about the Souls and Hateson um, quote. Um, that has been twisted to the point of um, becoming an anthem. Um, if you don't say something about racism, sexism, ismism, whateverism, uh, if you're a person who doesn't say something about it and doesn't take action, you're part of the problem. And generalization, there are groups there that are not afraid to state that. With a bullhorn. I, 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 I think, though, that along those lines, it's not true. 
<laughs> right? The, I think the, the phrase still stands, right? Yep. But in that sense, it's not true. It probably. So, um, yeah. There's, there's, there's a, I think in chapter 11 or 12, he sort of, the author sort of says, you know, a lot of people do this and then he says, oh, but we as Christians, we shouldn't do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then he kind of, I think he kind of corrects. I, I don't, I, in my mind, it's like I read it as like contradiction. It's kind of a con- contradictory sort of um, thing that he does. But then he sort of corrects himself. So I mean, perhaps I didn't really understand the argument too well. But it kind of goes al- along the lines of what you were saying. And then... Um, I don't know the I don't know the details, but yeah, I saw your face. <laughs> it seems like you picked on it, <laughs> picked up on it as well. Um, he does like. I think one of the refreshing things about this is that he does point out his own sometimes hypocrisy mm-hmm. of like we shouldn't generalize, but this is a generalization, <laughs> um, and also like that he actively points out like the the whole so you're saying thing at the end of each chapter like if i if that was how it was read oh no that was not my intent um because that's not what i'm trying to argue Mm -hmm. but it is i mean it's it's just a minefield and i think that's why he kind of um and at the very end of chapter 12 on page 158 um so it says this objection may come. Williams is asking us to interrogate the oppressed while the oppressors seem to get a free pass. No, our Lord preached the gospel of salvation to the poor and he preached the same message to the rich. We are all fallen. We are all fallible. We all need grace. No one's perspective, including my own, is free from the truth blurring power of sin, except God's perspective. Granting unquestionable status to the poor and oppressed or to anything other than the word of God is to erase the creator-creature distinction. And when we erase the difference between God and his creatures, what we call justice is sure to become injustice. And so as much truth can be spoken about, like, how your perspective distorts things or how you view other people, you are just as susceptible to that. Mm-hmm. Like, your viewpoint of who you are, like, uh, outside or stripped outside of your view of Christ, like, it is just ripe for, um, I would say, like, misinterpreting or misapplying your perception of your reality to be everyone's reality and what should be, especially when you look at how often the name of Christ is used on things that are not Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what do we mean when we say we are in Christ? Mm -hmm. And that's why the one thing that will strip all of the varnish off of whatever nasty thing you've tried to polish is the word of God and is a reliable translation of that word of God because so many of what like adjacent groups will do is retranslate it. So that way it will fit the narrative that they want it to. Like that was the first thing that um, the Jehovah's Witnesses came up with was their own translation of the scriptures. Um, That was what Brian Simmons, a self-proclaimed apostle who said he went to heaven to write uh, and got a specific commission from Christ himself to rewrite the New Testament for the Passion Translation. Hmm. 
Like that, it it has to come down to we have to then twist the word of God so that way we can say we're appealing to scripture, we can say we're appealing to truth, but it is now our version of that truth. And so studying the history of the transmission of the scriptures and understanding how we have the Bible we have is, I think, hugely important and not often emphasized because sometimes people will just say, well, it's Christian, so therefore it's good. And that leads to that same like generalization of labels, like, okay, but who who did it? Right. What do they believe? What do they think of? Like, this is one of the things we're discussing in the lay counseling team, like things that are called Christian. Where did they come from? And so what do they believe and what do they like? Um, we were listening to, to something last month that redefined the word wicked to mean just not willing to admit that you've done wrong. That was the only definition of wicked. Mm. <laughs> and like, mm. <laughs> so the presenter could, in I mean, bald face, I mean, it's a podcast, so bald voice saying, <laughs> um, I'm not a wicked person. And be right because of what he redefined the word wicked to be and how like that then changed. And then he would use scripture that had the word wicked in it but apply his definition of the word wicked to it. And so now everything is twisted, even though he's quoting from the word of God. And so like, I think that's just what Thaddeus Williams discusses is how labyrinthine this is that injustice does exist. There is evil in the world. There is evil in you, Mm -hmm. but what has Christ done? And how do we understand the impact of what Christ has done based on studying what the Word of God actually says in its context? That's one reason why my first dictionary go-to is Noah Webster's 1828. (laughs) (laughs) Did you get a free copy? Oh, on my phone. Oh, well, it can change it on your phone, though. <laughs> That'd be a PDF that you downloaded. Yeah. Actually, I'm rebuilding my paper library, and I think you know why. <laughs> yeah. yeah, people who commit great atrocities in history are not wicked if they admit that they their acts are yeah evil. I think it's. It's fascinating to me, and this is just watching someone who I know tangentially just go through an ongoing, like, I hate to say this, this is going to make me sound very ungenerous, but self-inflicted crisis. Mm. Um, And just how enraptured this person is, but also these sources that they're pulling from are enraptured with the idea of manipulation. Mm of how to recognize a manipulator in your life and how to recognize that you're dealing with a narcissist and how to recognize that you're dealing with someone who's toxic and what to do instead. And just how easy, I mean, I looked at one of the graphics that this person posted and all eight points said the same thing in different ways of like how to recognize a manipulator, but this is, Oh, it applies. I mean, that applies to any relationship. 
right? Mm-hmm. Just any relationship. But now it's being reinterpreted through the lens of manipulation, that this person knows what they're doing to you is wrong and they're doing it on purpose and they want something from you and you are always in the right and this person is always in the wrong. And that's how you can tell that you're dealing with someone who wants this from you. And I just thought like how exhausting that is and how that is, I mean, poisoned any interaction that you will have with people. And I think that's what Thaddeus Williams does address in both the suffering question and the standpoint question. I'm just like, if you see everything constantly in this lens, you become blind to when it is actually happening to you because you see it everywhere and you start to misinterpret things as acts of aggression. Yeah. I mean, like even the term microaggression and how that like does and doesn't exist it just gets so confusing because so many things can be interpreted to mean so many different like whether that's coming from a place of one particular ism or another it just becomes exhausting having to be alert or conscious or constantly seeking it just what that shuts your brain down to of like emotionally healthy Mm. interactions Mm. and like, if you constantly see everyone is out to get you. An emotionally healthy disagreement. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, disagreement in itself is not a bad um, thing. Um, disagreement is a starting point uh, to move toward something else. Uh, but if you, if you remain in the disagreement and see that the disagreement is a is a series of microaggressions or major aggressions by the oppressor, and now I need um, uh, systemic support uh, to protect me from this disagreement, uh, from this bad idea, uh, from this person who carries bad ideas. Um, that that. Perpetuate. I can't imagine what that perpetuates 10 years from now. I mean, we're seeing that right now with a lot of the calls to, like, pull books from shelves and just not engage with, I think, aspects that are harmful, but also aspects that are not. And so, like, but just not being willing to engage with it at all because it is um, oppressive to whatever, like, belief system you are in sure like that just is a recipe for disaster yes how many guys have read fahrenheit 451 what fahrenheit 451 mm-hmm. yeah. who has not read is that what you're no how how many of you have i mean right yeah have you guys read in fahrenheit 51 you're in for a treat um but <laughs> that's what captain Beatty's whole speech is at the end of the first part hearth and the salamander where he talks about the purpose of the firemen of the happiness boys of like, if there's something that upsets you, get rid of it. And then eventually what you've realized is that you've gotten rid of everything. And so you were supposed to keep people happy by preventing them from seeing things that will make them unhappy. And so this uh, world for y'all's con- is a world that's banned books. And so the firemen actually start fires. They are burning down people's uh, books and also the houses of people who have books. And it is... Um, a fascinating and really excellently done book, but 
it is like that that question of like why they do it, why they started it, especially when like through inference it's revealed that Captain Beatty uh, was once a reader of books and now is using that to strip other people of that opportunity because it will if you try to understand the universe, you will make yourself unhappy and their job is to keep you happy. So don't think about these things. Don't engage with them. Don't look at them. Don't see anything that makes you sad or upset or confused or question anything. And so burn everything. So that way no one has to engage with something that makes them uncomfortable. If you persistently, if you persistently search for oppression, you're going to find it. Yeah. Oh, even in things, even in things that don't happen at all. That hat, yeah. man. That hat. <laughs> you want it? It's very oppressive. <laughs> it's oppressing my it's oppressive. <laughs> Damn. It's a flat cap. So if we want to look at the like history of like Yorkshire miners mm-hmm. in the Thatcher administration, like that is Oh yeah. <laughs> Stalin War. It's a hard thing. <laughs> Hitler drank water. Yeah. One hundred percent of people who drink dihydrogen monoxide die. H two O. Yeah. Ninety nine point nine percent. Your statement is true. Yeah. Ninety nine point nine percent of people living on Earth have died on Earth. Better <laughs> 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 get off this planet. Um. But I think, like, jokes aside, this willingness to dismiss and and treat people's lived experiences as though all of them are making it up or all of them are being oversensitive or all of them are, that also is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so yes. it's that kind of tricky thing of, like, what do we do with lived experience? Because you have experienced something that I haven't or I did not take it the same way that you did. Does that mean that both of us are wrong? Mm-hmm. Or does that mean that one of us needs to be more sensitive or that one of us is being overly sensitive? And that is a conversation that has to happen on a specific basis. And so the goal of generalization is to prevent that kind of nuanced thinking. And so I think what's kind of interesting when it comes to the standard of objective truth is that God has allowed us understanding of nuance and how, like what that brings that there is still objective truth that you are either in Christ or outside of Christ. There is no in between here. But when it comes to how we relate to other humans on this world, there are in-betweens. There are things that we have to be understanding of and things that we have to be sensitive to. And if we are, like, overly callous, that doesn't solve it either. And I think that's why Christians are called to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We are supposed to be both and. We are supposed to be compassionate and speaking the truth Like, we are called to be both of those things. And so, in so many of the epistles, it is such an encouragement to be able, like, just the call to discernment Mm. of, like, what is true? What do you know to be true? You have had this gospel delivered to you once for all, for all of the saints. So how, understanding that, how do you then steer away from the people who would steer you wrong? Like in Galatians with the overemphasis on um, 
circumcision or in the first letter to the church in Corinth about their overemphasis of the gifts and demonstrations of the gifts and super apostledoms or ranks in the church. Um, how so quickly like truth gets distorted, but truth exists and nuance exists. Both of those things are true. And so how do we navigate that? Since we know the truth, how do we deal with one another and how do we deal with people who are not in Christ? And that depends on who you are, what your story is, what your lived experiences have been, as well as what theirs have been. It's a weird thing to be like, well, lived experience cannot be the end-all be-all, but you also can't discount it either. What are y'all's thoughts on that? I think if we didn't have lived experiences, we wouldn't be people. <laughs> so it's, you know, there's, there's that, you know, there's that factor, but... That's not the standard. Yeah. So, yeah, someone may have looked at you funny. Yeah. Maybe their tooth hurts. <laughs> you know, what about other, maybe they've thought about their their daughter who's lost. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, there, there's so many factors that play into the way people treat other people. And um, I think not ignoring, yeah. People hurt people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's just a fact of life. But it's, um, I think you alluded to this earlier. It's like God has given us um, the ability to walk through trials, to walk to um, to accept the suffering that we endure, to accept persecution when it comes. Um, not, he doesn't say act violently against those who abuse us. Um, so, I, I think though, to be careful with that, you can't like tell somebody, oh, you just got to endure it. I don't think that's right either. Um, it's complicated and it's, I think it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to undo. Um, the evil catechism of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> I think of the Disney Channel shows that I watched as a kid. At the time, I understood, you know, um, <laughs> when uh, kids in the TV show would be, be angry at their parents because they weren't listening to them or something like that. I recognized that as a kid, like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's not the right way to respond. But that's because I had biblical foundations. It's like I'm imagining, like, um, kids who watched that growing up um, with accepted no that. Right. Yeah, with no foundation. Right. And it's for years and years and years. It's just they've been they've been taught to view the world in a particular way. Yeah. And a single conversation, save the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to solve that. You're not going to solve all their problems with their thinking and logic with one conversation and certainly not being angry at them. Right. Um, Being uncompassionate. That's not going to solve it either. So we're just, we're discounting their lived experience. Right. Cause you, you, you do. That's, that's great, Josh. Um, We have the benefit in this, in this room of, of collective years of, knowing the gospel 
of conversion mm-hmm. of an act that happened outside of us that that converted us. Um, there are so many that don't have an inkling of what that's about. Mm-hmm. And right. um, uh, as I as I as I read Williams through these through these months, um, I was struck by just what a distance there can be between the church and the church within the church and so much more of the world. Mm-hmm. And that which you are that which you are fed mentally um, becomes your truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a whole danger of a confirmation bias. You're not aiming to change any minds. You are aiming to tell the people who already agree with you how right they are. Sure. Yeah. And so we're called back, you know, on a weekly basis, we're called to live in the gospel day by day by day and repeat the gospel to yourself. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a, there you, you, you can see the shortcomings in your walk that way because you have a standard that you see. Um, but you know that you have an identity in Christ, um, and that he lives in you that you may bring him to the world. And that's, uh, that's, sometimes that's so hard when you hear things that you say, where'd you get that idea? You know, what, what is your, what's your basis for that? That's what I struggle with anyway. I think so many people are without hope. So they have to turn to this. They have to turn to, they have to be part of something. Yeah. And so side B stuff, you know, it's like, oh, you're trying to be virtue singling, ha, ha, ha. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, they don't have Christ. So what do you expect? Um, it's not beneficial to make fun of that mm-hmm. um so I, I my coworkers, i just i see suffering and it's like i, I grew up with the gospel you know i can't imagine that you you, you can pro- you probably could right because of you know. but it's it's like you know my my heart goes out to um, those people but it's just the i think the opportunity that we have to share the gospel is just it's never um, in my lifetime at least have been so so ripe it's, it's, you know, <clears throat> so like what, what Tim, what you're saying, don't be scared, share the gospel, tell people the truth. <clears throat> the Western civilization is very much individualistic and we're naturally not wired that way. Mm-hmm. It, it is not good that man should be alone. We're meant to identify with a group and 
many times people identify with the wrong group when we're when we're all supposed to be identifying with Christ. I know we are either beyond, we are beyond. Yeah, Let me, 830. Right. Um, so since you're about to close this out, I thought it might be fitting to actually just um, wrap up since it's the final chapter. That's like, what I wanted to do. A, what did he take it from? Well, well I'm taking it. Yeah, that said ahead. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was leading into. Uh, a, what was your major takeaway from the book? And how can can it or how has it informed your uh, relationship with Christ, with God, or understanding, or relationship with other people? Hey, I'll go first. <laughs> um, for me, it's actually been uh, just reading the questions he proposes. Like, even if I just read those questions, um, they all seem to be um, focusing on the image of God in people. Like, treating people with value and respect and honor and dignity, with compassion, through love and service, and even perhaps uh, suffering. Um, but also speaking uh, the truth to them. It's just, to me, all those questions seem to fo uh, focus around the Mago Day. So um, for me, it was a, a just a, a reminder and a sharpening of every time I talk to someone, especially if someone just, who I keep saying, just has insane worldview ideas that um, no matter how militant they are towards me or towards the church or towards my brothers and sisters in Christ, towards the Christian faith, that they still have dignity and worth. And um, I need to treat them as such in those who are made in the image of God. And that I'm only a child of God by grace. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they can receive God's grace too. So that was a... Um, a, a, remind, a great reminder and a, a sharpening of of that to um, when I engage with people. So that would be mine. One of the ones, of course, it was early, uh, so it struck me and has has pretty much stuck stuck with me. Um, was his chapter on idolatry? What do you make idols out of? And and is your vision of social justice um, so in Christ and in your identity in Christ and in and in the created beings identity in Christ, or is it in something else? The church, the state, the 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 uh, um, the social club. Or whatever it is. Yeah. So the the idolatry question was a yeah, I thought was a was a very good question. Yeah. I think he alludes this many. I think he alludes to this many times, and I think it's probably the foundation of the discussion is: Are we going to have a God-centered? view of social justice or is it going to be man-centered and i think he sums it up pretty well 
the consequences of both views. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think for me, um, though I confess I did not get all of the book read. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate um, yeah. yeah. I just really found it personally reinvigorating. You know, cutting a swath through this life is not easy, and dealing with the crud out there is not easy. It it is so much easier to just fall into these mindsets, broad brush generalizations, and just sort of put people in a convenient box. And to do it even when you're not realizing you're doing it. Um, And I just felt very inspired to sort of reassess myself and where I've been lazy in doing that um, when and to be thoughtfully engaging. When I see my fellow Christians doing it, sometimes there's some comments on my Facebook posts <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're doing that. It's so much easier to see it in another person than in mm-hmm. me, I'm sure. But just I felt kind of um, pulled up to to a higher standard, to a, no, really, this is worth pursuing in Christ people in this way. This is what God is calling us and empowering us to do. This is important. This is worth it. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about it, you know? And and so I have felt more inspired to engage with people a little more creatively. Like, I agree with you, X and Y, you know, like someone said, you know, well, the trans people, they talk about how they're just going through so much turmoil when Christians are being martyred all around the world. And I said, okay, I completely agree with you that being martyred for your faith is worse than being bullied or left out. I said, but what I was talking about in my post was the hurt behind that may have led them into transsexualism. Mm-hmm. That, you know, who can imagine what that might be, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so reading this book has helped me to just um you know that that proper push in the bum and 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 modeled so well in his writing how to process how to think and what to keep in mind not compromising the truth whatsoever but well to walk more as jesus walked yeah i guess This book for me was definitely more of a reminder of and reaffirming of beliefs that I do hold already concerning um, speaking to others the truth. And it also put into better perspective of how to handle that and how to address people like who have been in hurt and that has led them to things that are unbiblical. So. Um, I recommended this book for study. Um, I read it when it was published in 2020. So this was the height of George Floyd. This was the height of the pandemic and discussions about um, racial injustice and systemic injustice. And the chapter that always it really stands out to me is chapter six, um, the fruit question. 
because it is more about like what social justice should produce rather than like what we should um, like focus on eradicating. And it, it has those two compared essays of Corey Ten Boom and um, Bell Hooks. And just as a reminder, cause I am, I am someone who um, will use experiences in my own past to justify my tone with someone. And that is not always good. Um, I'm very dismissive of like people who have not come to the same sense of understanding of like the importance of scripture, the importance of justice and just how that is not what Christ asks me to do. And so while there have been people who have hurt me, um, that is not an excuse to not engage with them. And so understanding like what my role is, um, what, these broader discussions about actual hurt and injustice that has been perpetuated sometimes in the name of Christ, how these are in, like discussions that need to be had. And then also like, what is your role? How badly do you need the gospel? And because you believe the gospel, what should that look like in your own life? So the forgiveness that is shown, the grace and understanding and um, compassion that is shown um, how much I need to emulate my savior. And so that always kind of like sticks with me. So, um, I think it is, and I, I appreciate Thaddeus Williams kind of acknowledging his own hypocrisy. And as I've mentioned, there are some things in the book that I don't like agree with 100%, but most of it I do. And I think it is important to recognize that you are flawed <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that how you interpret things is going to largely be based on who you are and what you've been through mm-hmm. and how that is something that is a huge contributor to who you are and why you are the way that you are. But the identity that matters more is Christ. And so who do you pursue and how do you help others understand that role, that this identity, this self that they see cannot be their end goal? Because the actual fully, like, full sense of self comes from Christ. Your need for a savior, your role in the world as a created thing, created in the image of God, as Tim mentioned, but a created thing nonetheless. Like, how much do we owe our creator and how much has he given us? And so understanding that is just so paramount when it comes to engaging with people who believe something completely opposite to what the reality of their spiritual state is. So that's been my major thing. Okay. <laughs> Let me um, wrap up with a prayer. And I think I actually will go back to the beginning of the book, the forward. Yeah. And I'll base my prayer around uh, purposes for points. Mm-hmm. Let me just remind everyone of them, and then I'll pray. The first point is to start with God. God is bigger than we can imagine. Second, be one in Christ. Third, preach the gospel. And fourth, finally, teach the truth. So I'll structure my prayer around those four points. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, book study. Uh, Thank you for Alia recommending it and leading it. Um, We thank you for those who were able to attend over the months. Pray that was a blessing for anyone who attended. 
Thank you that you were in the midst of our discussions. And as we've just shared, um, even in the midst of our hearts, uh, we thank you that this has been a tool for reminders, for um, uh, encouragement, for inspiration, and for a way to see our own struggles and weaknesses uh, that we continue to look to you. And so, Father, we ask that all of us here and those listening would uh, start with you. When we engage in such conversations, that you are the creator and we are the creatures. And so that um, everything that we experience, everything that we discuss, uh, really should center around you and your revealed will and your truth. We also ask that we continue to be in Christ. We thank you that you've saved us and we do ask that we would be reminded of your grace towards us and also be reminded that uh, those who do not see you as the Lord and Savior, we were once like them. So help us to treat them with respect and dignity and compassion. And um, we pray that we would pray for those who have not come into the kingdom. And they come into the kingdom by your gospel, Lord. So we ask that we continue to preach it. As it was preached to us, it was the means of our salvation. We ask that, Lord, we would have the courage to speak your truth, the, the compassion to share your love, the compassion and the strength and the boldness to tell people um, that they are sinners. However, there is a way out um, because of what you did on the cross, Jesus. And we thank you for that. And finally, Lord, we do ask that we continue to... Um, preach the truth, that we would make disciples, uh, that we would preach the gospel, um, not water it down, but just share it faithfully and let the Spirit do its work, and that those who do come to faith or those who are currently in faith and um, have questions or struggling with how to deal with race relations, transgender things, things addressed in this book, that they don't know how, how to uh, apply the scriptures to these issues properly that we hear and those listening and those in this book and those in our congregation church at large would teach um, those who are struggling how to apply these things give us wisdom in this area um, we uh, especially pray for those who shared uh, this evening with personal struggles and neighbors and friends who've shared things with us um, that are contrary to your word, and we do ask for grace and wisdom and how to continue those conversations, to speak truth, to point them to Jesus. Um, and we ask for courage and boldness in, in all of those areas, Father. Um, please help us, because we need help. We can't do it on our own. Please help us to have good attitudes, behavior. Please help us to be bold. Please help us to remember these four points. Lord, um, we just thank you for everything you do for us uh, through tools like this, through groups like this, through people who will come alongside us, but help us to remember that we must all depend upon you and depend upon your spirit um, to preach your saving grace. Lord, we fail in so many ways, but you never fail. And you, you say you'll be with us to the end of the age. We hang and rest on that promise when we deal with such issues that our culture and our society is facing that seem scary when we look at the news, it seemed difficult now to talk to coworkers, friends, and family, but you are with us, Lord, rest in that promise. Be with all of us and our families and our church as we depart from here. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. amen.